Chapter Nine, Part Three of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marion Martin. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Nine, Trafalgar, Part Three. There is no naval battle regarding which we possess so many detailed narratives of those who took part in it on both sides, and it would be easy to compile a long list of stirring incidents and heroic deeds. Though the battle lasted till about five o'clock, it had been practically decided in the first hour. In that space of time, many of the enemy's ships had been disabled. Two had been actually taken, and on the other hand, England had suffered a loss that dimmed the brightness of the victory. In the first stage of the fight, Nelson's flagship was engaged with the redoubtable alone, the two ships locked together. Presently, the Temeraire closed on the other side of the Frenchman, and the Victory found herself in action with a couple of the enemy that came drifting through the smoke on the other side of her, one of them being the giant Santissima Trinidad. Before the Temeraire engaged her, the redoubtable had been fearfully damaged by the steady fire of the Victory, and had also lost heavily in repeated attempts to board the English flagship. Only a midshipman and four men succeeded in scrambling on board, and they were at once killed or made prisoners. Captain Lucas, of the Redoubtable, in the report on the loss of his ship, told how out of a crew of 643 officers and men, sailors and soldiers, 300 were killed, and more than 200 badly wounded, including most of the officers. The ship was dismasted, stern post damaged and steering gear destroyed and the stern on fire she was leaking badly and most of the pumps had been shot through most of the lower deck guns were dismounted some by collision with the enemy's sides some by his fire and two guns had burst both sides of the ship were riddled in several places two or more ports had been knocked into one and the after-deck beams had come down making a huge gap in the upper deck the redoubtable already in a desperate condition became a sinking wreck when the temeraire added her fire to that of the flagship but the victory had not inflicted this loss herself unscathed one of her masts had gone over the side and there had been heavy loss on her upper decks and in her batteries the wheel was shot away several men had been killed and wounded on the quarter-deck where nelson was walking up and down talking to captain hardy one shot strewed the deck with the bodies of eight marines another smashed through a boat and passed between nelson and hardy bruising the latter's foot and taking away a shoe-buckle all the while there came a crackle of musketry from a party of sharpshooters in the mizzen-top of the redoubtable only some sixty feet away and nelson's decorations must have made him a tempting target even if the marksmen did not know who he was at twenty minutes past one he was hit in the left shoulder the bullet plunging downwards and backwards into his body. He fell on his face, and Hardy, turning, saw some of the men picking him up. They have done for me at last, Hardy, he said. I hope not, said the captain, and Nelson replied, Yes, my backbone is shot through. But he showed no agitation, and as the men carried him below, he covered his decorations with a handkerchief, lest the crew should notice them and realize that they had lost their chief and he gave Hardy an order to see that tiller lines were rigged on the rudder-head, 
to replace the shattered wheel. His flag was kept flying, until the action ended, the fleet was not aware of his loss, and looked to the victory for signals as far as the smoke allowed. He had not been ten minutes among the wounded on the lowest deck, when the cheers of the crew, following on a sudden lull in the firing, told him that the redoubtable had struck her colours. Twenty minutes later the Fourreur, the second prize of the day, was secured. She had come into action with the Temeraire, while the latter was still engaged with the redoubtable. On the surrender of the latter, the Temeraire was able to concentrate her fire on the Fougueux. Mast after mast came down, and the sea was pouring into two huge holes on the water-line when the shattered ship drifted fall of the Temeraire, and was grappled by her. Lieutenant Kennedy dashed on board of the Frenchman, at the head of a rush of boarders, cleared her upper decks, hauled down her flag, and took possession of the dismasted ship. Between two and three o'clock, no less than nine ships were taken, five Spanish and four French. Villeneuve's flagship, the Boussantour, was one of these. She struck a few minutes after two o'clock. At the opening of the battle, she had fired four broadsides at the approaching victory. Nelson gave her one shattering broadside in reply at close quarters, as he passed on to attack the redoubtable. As this ship's way was stopped, and a space opened between her and the French flagship, Captain Fremantle brought his three-decker, the Neptune, under the Boussantour's stern, raking her as he passed through the line and ranged up beside her. Then Pelou brought the conqueror into action, beside her on the other side, and as chance allowed her guns to bear, the victory was at times able to join in the attack. French accounts of the battle tell of the terrible destruction caused on board the Boussantour by this concentrated fire. More than two hundred were hors de combat, most of them killed. Almost every officer and man on the quarter-deck was hit, Villeneuve himself being slightly wounded. The men could hardly stand to the guns, and at last their fire was masked by mast after mast, coming down with yards, rigging and sails hanging over the gun muzzles villeneuve declared his intention of transferring his flag to another ship but was told that every boat had been knocked to splinters and his attendant frigate which might have helped him in this emergency had been driven out of the melee as the last of the masts went over the side at two o'clock the conqueror ceased firing and hailed the boussantour with a summons to surrender five minutes later her flag hoisted on an improvised staff, was taken down, and Captain Atchley, of the Conqueror's Marines, went on board the French flagship, and received the surrender of Admiral Villeneuve, his staff officer Captain Prigny, Captain Magendie, commanding the ship, and General de Contamine, the officer in command of the 4,000 French troops embarked on the fleet. Next in the line ahead of the Boussantour lay the giant Santissima Trinidad, carrying the flag of rear admiral Cisneros. As the fleets closed, she had exchanged fire with her four tiers of guns with several of the British ships. When the melee began, she came drifting down into the thick of the fight. For a while she was engaged with the victory, in the dense fog of smoke, where so many ships were tearing each other to pieces in the centre. The high-placed guns of the Trinidad's upper tier cut up the victory's rigging, and sent down one of her masts. The English flagship was delivered from the attack of her powerful antagonist by the Trinidad drifting clear of her. By this time Fremantle was attacking her with the Neptune, 
supported by the colossus at half-past one a third ship joined in the close attack on the towering trinidad which every captain who got anywhere near her was anxious to make his prize this new ally was the battleship africa during the night she had run out to the northward of the british fleet nelson had signalled to her early in the day to rejoin as soon as possible but her captain digby needed no pressing he was crowding sail to join in the battle he ran down past dumanoir ships of the van squadron putting a good many shots into them but receiving no damage from their ill-aimed fire then he steered into the thick of the fight taking for his guide the tall masts of the trinidad at one thirty he opened fire on her at one fifty eight all the masts of the trinidad came down together the enormous mass of spars rigging and sails going over her side into the water as she rolled to the swell she had already lost some four hundred men killed and wounded admiral cisneros was among the latter many of her guns had been silenced and the fall of the masts masked a whole broadside she now ceased firing and surrendered in the log of the africa it is noted that lieutenant smith was sent with a party to take possession of her he does not seem to have succeeded in getting on board for the trinidad drifted with silent guns for at least two hours after with no prize crew on board it was at the end of the battle that the prince sent a party to board her and took her in tow another flagship the three-decker santana carrying the flag of rear admiral alava became the prize of the royal sovereign collingwood had opened the fight by breaking the line astern of her his raking broadside as he swept past her had put scores of her crew out of action when he laid his ship alongside of her to leeward it was evident from the very first that she could not meet the english ship on anything like equal terms in a quarter of an hour his flag captain rotherham grasped collingwood's hand saying i congratulate you sir her fire is slackening and she must soon strike but the santana fought to the last till only a single gun now here now there answered the steady pounding fire of the royal sovereign's broadside at two thirty her colours came down collingwood told his lieutenant to send the spanish admiral on board his own ship but word was sent back that alava was too badly wounded to be moved more than four hundred of the santana's crew had been killed and wounded the tonnant third ship in collingwood's line and one of the prizes taken in the battle of the nile captured another flagship that of the gallant rear-admiral maron the algeciras as the tonnant went through the allied line after exchanging fire with the fougueux and the monarca the algeciras raked her astern killing some forty men the tonnant then swung round and engaged the algeciras and was crossing her bows when maron trying to run his ship alongside her to board entangled his bowsprit in the main rigging of the english ship she was thus held fast with only a few forward guns bearing while most of the broadside of the tonnant was raking her from the foretop of the algeciras a party of marksmen fired down on the english decks and wounded captain tyler badly admiral maron in person tried to lead a strong body of boarders over his bows into the english ship mortally wounded he was carried aft and of his men only one set foot on the tonnant this man was at once stabbed with a pike and would have been killed if an officer had not rescued him 
the ships lay so close that the flashes of the tonnant's guns set fire to the bows of the algeciras and the flames spread to both ships a couple of british sailors dragged the fire hose over the hammock nettings and while the guns were still in action they worked to keep down and extinguish the flames one by one the masts of the algeciras went into the sea carrying the unfortunate soldiers in the tops with them in a little more than half an hour she lost four hundred and thirty-six men including most of her officers her position was hopeless and at last she struck her colours the prize crew that boarded her found maon lying dead on the deck with his captain badly wounded beside him the bellerophon famous for her fight at the nile adding to her record of hard fighting to-day and destined to be the ship that was to receive the conqueror of europe as a prisoner followed the tonnant into action and found herself engaged with the spanish monarca on one side and the french eagle on the other she came in collision with the eagle and their yards locked together the bellerophon's rigging was cut to pieces two of her masts were carried away and numbers of her crew were struck down her captain being wounded early in the day a little after half-past one the eagle drifted clear and was engaged by and in half an hour forced to strike to the defiance meanwhile the bellerophon was hard at work with two spanish ships the monarca and the bahama and so effectually battered them that at three o'clock the former was a prize and the other surrendered half an hour later the tonnant after her capture of maron's ship shared in the victory over another brave opponent commodore churruca and his ship the san juan nepomuceno churruca was the youngest flag officer in the spanish navy he had won a european reputation by explorations in the pacific and on the south american coasts keen in his profession recklessly courageous deeply religious he was an ideal hero of the spanish navy in which he is still remembered as el gran churruca the great churruca who died like the fifth he had no illusions but told his friends he was going to defeat and death and he knew that when he left cadiz he was bidding a last farewell to the young wife he had lately married the french admiral does not know his business he said to his first lieutenant as he watched the van division holding its course while the two english lines rushed to the attack as the english closed with the spanish rear churruca's ship came into close action with the defiance and was then attacked in succession by the dreadnought and the tonnant the san juan fought till half her men were hors de combat several guns dismounted and two of the masts down as long as churruca lived the unequal fight was maintained for a while he seemed to have a charmed life as he passed from point to point encouraging his men he was returning to his quarter-deck when a ball shattered one of his legs it is nothing keep on firing he said and at first he refused to leave the deck lying on the planking with a shattered limb roughly bandaged he sent for his second-in-command and was told he had just been killed another officer though wounded took over the active command when at last churruca nearly dead from loss of blood was carried below he gave a last message for his wife sent a final order that the ship should be fought till she sank and then said he must think only of god and the other world as he expired the san juan gave up the hopeless fight the three ships all claimed her as their prize but it was a dreadnought that took possession the french swiftshore once english was won back by the colossus 
after a fight in which the Orion helped her for a while. With her capture, one-third of the enemy's whole force, including several flagships, was in English hands. The victory was won. It was now only a question of making it more and more complete. Shortly after three o'clock, the Spanish eighty-gun ship Argonauta struck to the Belle Isle, which had been aided in her attack by the English Swiftshore. A few minutes later, the Leviathan took another big Spaniard, the San Agustin, carrying her with a rush of boarders. It was about four o'clock that after an hour of hard fighting, the San Ildefonso hauled down her colours to the defence. About this time, the French Achille was seen to be ablaze and ceased firing. In the earlier stages of the fight, she had been engaged successively with the Polyphemus, Defiance, and Swiftshore. Her captain and several of her officers and nearly 400 men had been killed and wounded when she was brought to close action by the prince. Her fore-rigging caught fire, and the mast coming down across the decks started ablaze in several places, and the men, driven from the upper deck by the English fire, had to abandon their attempts to save their ship. She was well alight when at last she struck her colours, and the prince, aided by the little brig Pickle, set to work to save the survivors of her crew. She blew up after the battle. The Berwick was another ship taken before four o'clock, but I cannot trace the details of her capture. While the battle still raged fiercely, Admiral Dumanoir, in the formidable, was steering away to the northwestward, followed by the Mont Blanc, Dugard, Rouen, and Scipion. But two ships of his division, the Neptuno and the Entrepide, had disregarded his orders and turned back to join in the fight, working the ship's heads round by towing them with boats. The Entrepide led. Her captain, Enfernet, was a rough Provencal sailor who had fought his way from the forecastle to the quarter-deck. Indignant at Dumanois's conduct, he had early in the battle given orders to steer for the thickest of it. Le capo sous le boussantor. Head her for the boussantor, he shouted in his native patois. He arrived too late to fight for victory, but he fought for the honour of his flag. After engaging several British ships, Enfernet struck to the Orion. An officer of the conqueror, which had taken part in the fight with the Entrepide, wrote, her captain surrendered after one of the most gallant defences I ever witnessed. His name was Enfernet, and it deserves to be recorded by all who admire true heroism. The Entrepide was the last ship that struck her colours. The Spanish ship that had followed the Entrepide into action, the Aitigan Neptuno, had shortly before been forced to strike to the Minotaur and the Spartiate, another of the prizes of Abukir Bay. Before these last two surrenders completed the long list of captured ships, Nelson had passed away. The story of his death in the cockpit of the victory is too well known to need repetition. Before he died, the cheers of his crew and the messages brought to him had told him of capture after capture, and assured him that his triumph was complete. As the firing ceased, Collingwood took over the command of the fleet and transferred his flag from his own shattered and dismasted ship, the Royal Sovereign, to Blackwood's smart frigate, the Euryalus. When the Entrepide struck, seventeen ships of the Allied fleet had been taken. One, the Achille, was in a blaze, and soon to blow up. Four were in flight, far away to the northwest. Eleven were making for Cadiz, 
all bearing the marks of hard hitting during the fight. Some desultory firing at the nearest fugitives ended the battle. Crowds on the breakwater of Cadiz and the nearest beaches had watched all the afternoon the great bank of smoke on the horizon and listened to the rumbling thunder of the cannonade. After sunset, ship after ship came in, bringing news of disaster, and all the night wounded men were being conveyed to the hospitals. More than half of the Allied fleet had been taken or destroyed. The four ships that escaped with Dumanoir were captured a few days later by a squadron under Sir Richard Strachan. The French ships that escaped into Cadiz were taken possession of by the Spanish insurgents when Spain rose against the French and Cadiz joined the revolt. As the battle ended, the British fleet was, to use the expression of the Neptune's log, in all directions. The sun was going down, the sky was overcast, and the rising swell and increasing wind told of the coming storm. Most of the prizes had been dismasted. Many of them were leaking badly. Some of the ships that had taken them were in almost as damaged a condition, and many of them were short-handed, with heavy losses in battle and detachments sent on board the captured vessels. The crews were busy clearing the decks, getting up improvised jury masts, and repairing the badly cut-up rigging, where the masts still stood. Nelson's final order had been to anchor, to ride out the expected gale. Collingwood doubted if this would be safer than trying to make Gibraltar, and he busied himself getting the scattered fleet and prizes together, and tacking to the south-westward. The gale that swept all the coasts of Western Europe caught the disabled fleet with a hostile shore under its lee. Only four of the prizes, and those the poorer ships of the lot, ever saw Gibraltar. Ship after ship went down. Others were abandoned and burnt. Others drove ashore. In these last instances, the British prize crews were rescued and kindly treated by the Spanish coast population. One ship, the Algeciras, was retaken by the French prisoners, and carried into Cadiz. Another, the big Santana, was recaptured as she drifted helplessly off the port. But though there were few trophies left after the great storm, Trafalgar had finally broken the naval power of Napoleon, freed England from all fear of invasion, and given her the undisputed empire of the sea. Yet there were only half-hearted rejoicings at home. The loss of Nelson seemed a dear price to pay, even for such a victory. Some 2,500 men were killed and wounded in the victorious fleet. Of the losses of the Allies, it is difficult to give an estimate. Every ship that was closely engaged suffered severely, and hundreds of wounded went down in several of those that sank in the storm. For weeks after, search parties, riding along the shores from Gadith to Cape Trafalgar, gathered every day a grim harvest of corpses, drifted to land by the Atlantic tides. The Allied loss was at least 7,000 men, and may have been considerably greater. The news came to England just after something like a panic had been caused by the tidings of the surrender of a whole Austrian army at Ulm. It reached Napoleon in the midst of his triumphs to warn him that his power was bounded by the seas that washed the shores of the continent. Well did Meredith say, that in his last great fight, Nelson drove the smoke of Trafalgar to darken the blaze of Austerlitz. End of chapter 9, part 3